Hi, Uni Church. Today's Bible reading is from Acts chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 31. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John. While they were speaking to the people, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, and as the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was named and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucify, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that this man had been with Jesus but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then confer together. What are we going to do with this man, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that chef, priests, and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, 
Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Unichurch, do you believe that a bold message can change the world? Can you think of a particular message or idea that has been so powerfully communicated that it has changed the course of human history? I'm gonna test us a little bit to test this hypothesis. So I'm gonna pull out some famous quotes from history-making speeches, and let's see if you can identify who said them. This is the first one. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Who said that? Martin Luther King Jr., nice. All right, here's the next one, it's a little harder. During my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to this struggle of the African people. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve, but if needs be, it's an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Who said this? Yeah, nice, Nelson Mandela. All right, here's the last one. You are failing us but young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you, and if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. Who said that? Yeah, nice, Greta Thunberg. All right, you guys, I think we we tested this and it, it worked, right? These powerful, bold proclamations have echoed throughout history. Many would say that they've changed the course of history, that they've inspired movements, they've catalyzed change. And in tonight's passage, we're gonna see how the bold proclamation of the gospel has altered the course of the church's history as well. Our series title in Acts, To the Ends of the Earth, comes from this key verse in the very first chapter. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This verse is basically the book of Acts in a nutshell. We saw in chapter two that the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost on all believers and enabled them to proclaim the gospel and to witness about Jesus in many languages. Last week, Sam preached on Acts three, and we saw that the Spirit empowered Peter and John to heal a lame beggar at the temple. We've seen the Holy Spirit fill the apostles and the early church with great power to preach the gospel and to perform miraculous signs that point to the salvation found in Jesus. And already the Jesus movement has grown, right? From being a few hundred people to thousands of people putting their faith in Jesus. Now, if we try to locate where we're at in the book of Acts in terms of geography, we're still in Jerusalem. The gospel movement begins in Jerusalem, but God's plan is for it to spread onwards and outwards to Judea and Samaria, and we'll keep tracking that through the book of Acts. And it eventually ends with Paul preaching the gospel in Rome. But we also know that the gospel movement goes beyond what's recorded in the Bible, that it does indeed begin to reach the ends of the earth. And how do we know that? Well, look around this room. 
Take a second to look at the people next to you. Some of us here might be able to trace our ancestry to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, maybe even Rome. But my bet is that for most of us, our family's roots fit in the to the ends of the earth category. So how does the gospel get there? Our passage tonight helps fill in that story for us. It gives us an idea of how we get from the early days of the church to where we are today. And there are three mechanisms of gospel growth and spread that I want us to see and to be challenged by and to be encouraged by. And they are, firstly, bold proclamation of the salvation found in Jesus' name. Secondly, bold allegiance to Jesus in the face of opposition. And finally, bold prayers and even more proclamation in Jesus' name. So first, I want us to see that the gospel movement grows through bold proclamation of the gospel. Our passage tonight begins with Peter and John speaking to the crowd that has just witnessed the miraculous healing of the lame beggar. They've all come running to where Peter and John are and they're amazed by this sign. They're a captive audience for the apostles' message. And Peter begins to preach to them. He bears witness to Jesus. By faith, he says, in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. But as they're speaking, the the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees enter the scene. But they're not filled with wonder and amazement like the crowd. They're not jumping around and praising God like the man that was healed. Look with me at verse two. Instead, it says they are greatly disturbed. They're so disturbed, in fact, that they seize Peter and John and put them in jail for the night. Why this reaction? Well, firstly, the Sadducees were a subgroup of the Jewish community who did not believe that there would be a general resurrection from the dead. So they had real theological beef with what the apostles were preaching. But maybe even more importantly, they were threatened by the implications of the message being preached. The Sadducees were a group of elite Jewish leaders. They had all the religious, economic, social, and political power. Life was pretty good for them, and they wanted to preserve the status quo to keep their Roman rulers happy. And the preaching of the salvation found only in Jesus and the growing movement of Jesus followers, it threatened to disrupt and destabilize everything for them. And so they tried desperately to nip this movement in the bud. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law meet in Jerusalem. The high priest and all his family are present, all the big guns. And they drag Peter and John from their jail cell and they start to question them. By what power or whose name did you do this? What is the source of your power, they ask? By whose name are you doing these miraculous acts? And Peter's response to their question in verse 10 is clear and direct. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Peter then quotes from Psalm 118 to tell them that Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. His accusation is a gut punch. 
the chief priests and the teachers of the law were the builders who were charged with building God's people up by teaching them God's word. Jesus was the Messiah that that God had long promised and as teachers of God's law, they should have known this, but they failed to recognize who Jesus was. Instead, they rejected him. They crucified him. And the stone they had rejected turned out to be the true foundation that God was building his people on, the cornerstone, the most important and foundational stone of all in the building. And Peter concludes this by saying, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter is unapologetic and bold about the saving power of Jesus' name. He's clear, there is no other name under heaven that can save. A few years ago when I was doing my traineeship at Melbourne Uni Christian Union, we used to do this thing called walk-up evangelism. We would go out in pairs and go out to campus and we would walk up to people and ask them to participate in a survey. And all the survey questions were sort of about trying to understand their worldview and what they thought about religion and ultimately what they thought about Jesus. And I remember having this conversation with someone who described themselves as agnostic, as spiritual but not religious. I wonder if you've met someone like that. And so as we began to talk about their worldview and sort of unpack what they believed, what they thought of Jesus, they sort of threw out this line that was something like, and I'm paraphrasing because it was a few years ago, but it was something like, Jesus is the name that Christians give to their God, but Muslims call him Allah. And for other people, God is simply the universe, a higher power, a life force behind all things. But in the end, they're all expressions of the same truth, the same God. Have you heard an argument like this before? I have a quote here from uh, Indian civil rights movement leader Gandhi, who says, religions are different roads converging to the same point. What does it matter if we take different roads as long as we reach the same goal? So as Gandhi's quote shows, this argument is not a new one, but I think it really sits at home in our sort of you-do-you culture, right? If you want to call on the name of Jesus, that's cool with me, as long as you are okay with me giving my God a different name or believing in no God at all. They're all just different paths up the same mountain. We all end up in the same place. We just call it different things. It's all good as long as you don't try to tell me that your way, or rather Jesus' way, is the only way. One problem with this argument is that it is just really reductive, right? It's just too simplistic to summarize all the faiths and all the religions of the world as being basically the same. But I think the bigger problem with this argument is that it's not what Jesus says about himself. Jesus says it like this, he is the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, the life. Jesus won't let you categorize him as just one option of many. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. If you're someone here who's still exploring who Jesus is, Can I encourage you to seriously consider what Jesus says about himself? That he presents himself exclusively as the only way to be saved, the only way to be forgiven of sins, the only way to be reconciled to God, 
the only way to live life to the full, to experience true peace and wholeness and hope and love. You might come to the end of your investigation and conclude that Jesus was wrong. Maybe at best he was delusional or worse, he was a liar and a fraud, but either way, he's irrelevant. Or you might come to believe that Jesus is right, that salvation can only be found in his name. Those are the two options. There is no middle ground. Now Peter, having been taught by Jesus, having lived with Jesus, having seen his death and his resurrection, having been transformed by him, Peter concludes and summarizes, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And as Peter and John boldly proclaim the salvation found in Jesus, people are saved. Look at verse four. While they're being hauled off to jail, thousands of people come to believe in the message and put their faith in Jesus. Bold proclamation of Jesus' name and the salvation he offers leads people to come to be saved as they put their trust in him. For those of you here tonight who do believe in Jesus, think back to your own story. Who did God use to proclaim the gospel to you? Was it your parents? Was it a youth leader, a friend? Did you hear the gospel proclaimed through a sermon at church, in a campus Bible study, at a youth camp, in a conversation with a friend who was a Christian? Who was it that opened the Bible up with you? Who unpacked and explained the gospel in a way that you could understand and connect to? God has always used the bold proclamation of Jesus' name and the salvation found in him to draw people to himself. As we see in Acts, it's what happened from the very beginning of the church, and it's reflected across every generation of believers and thousands of years of Christian history, and it's reflected in our own stories. God continues to use bold proclamation in the name of Jesus to save people today. The second observation we can make is that the gospel continues to spread when believers display bold allegiance to Jesus in the face of opposition. As we've seen, bold proclamation of Jesus is what leads people to put their faith in him, it's what grows the church, but it's also really divisive. Jesus' name can be disruptive and threatening to those in power. And so bold proclamation of Jesus will lead to opposition. Eventually, in the book of Acts, we know it leads to persecution. Our passage tonight, we get the first glimpse of this opposition to the Jesus movement. So the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law have just listened to Peter turn the tables on them. He was the accused, but now he's accused them of rejecting Jesus, of crucifying him, and testified that salvation is found only in his name. And they're stunned. They're silent. They're astonished at the courage of Peter and John and they're struck by the powerful witness of a man that had been lame for 40 years, now upright and walking. Look with me at verse 14. There was nothing they could say. And so because they can't refute the message of Jesus, they try to silence it. 
they tell each other, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They command the apostles not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And I love Peter and John's reply, it's swift and it's decisive. Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Remember, the Sanhedrin are the most powerful leaders in the Jewish community. Peter and John and the whole early church, they're members of this community. They don't see following Jesus as separate to their Jewish identity. They believe Jesus is the Messiah that their people have been waiting for. And the Sanhedrin have the power to make their life really, really difficult. And defying their orders is gonna come at great cost. But they don't hesitate to boldly declare their allegiance to Jesus. Who are we gonna listen to, they ask? Human rulers or God himself and his anointed King Jesus? This is a pattern we're gonna see again and again in the book of Acts. Bold proclamation of Jesus' name is gonna stir up opposition and persecution. But it's not a surprise. Actually, Jesus himself told his disciples that it would happen. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Can you see how Jesus' words are being fulfilled in Acts? The disciples knew this would happen, and so when it does, they're ready. They're ready to boldly declare their allegiance to their true king. But the apostles' courage is not because they trust in themselves, but because they trust in Jesus and because they're filled with his own spirit who is speaking through them. The Holy Spirit himself is empowering the apostles to stand up to human opposition. And that same Holy Spirit, the one who spoke through Peter and John and others when they faced opposition, he lives in us today. And knowing this means we can face opposition with boldness and confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus' spirit who is speaking through us. Uh, while we here in Melbourne might not be dragged before earthly rulers because we're proclaiming Jesus, I think being a Christian does mean we'll find ourselves in uncomfortable situations. We're standing with Jesus and declaring your loyalty to him will cost you. I'm sure you've experienced this. Someone asks you what you got up to on the weekend and you hesitate and you wonder, do I mention that I went to church? knowing that your reply is gonna raise some eyebrows and maybe invite some uncomfortable questions. A group of your friends are talking about their dating experiences, who they're sleeping with, who hooked up with who on a night out, and their eyes turn to you. Do you tell them that your dating life is shaped by a different ethic? Do you step out of your comfort zone and explain that your choices are more about loving Jesus rather than loving your own pleasure? In your workplace, someone asks, are you a Christian? Or, you can't really think that your religion is the only one. 
or maybe you're an intelligent person, you don't really believe the stuff in the Bible about the resurrection and miracles and heaven, like, be serious. When we're in those situations, we can trust that the Holy Spirit is with us. And we can ask him to speak through us, to use us as fragile, imperfect spokespeople for Jesus' powerful, beautiful, and saving name, just like Jesus promised he would. If you think you don't know enough, or you're not articulate enough, or you're not brave enough, well, neither were the apostles. They were unschooled, ordinary men, as it says in verse 13. But they knew Jesus. They had been transformed by him. They had his Holy Spirit living in them. And so do we. We know Jesus. We've been transformed by him and we have his spirit living in us, speaking through us, using us to proclaim his gospel. So will we do it? Will we boldly declare our allegiance to Jesus even when it hurts? When standing with Jesus will cost us status or acceptance? Will we trust that the Holy Spirit is living in us and will speak through us when we need him to? Finally, I want us to notice that the gospel spreads through bold prayers and even more spirit-filled proclamation. This clash with the Sadducees and the high priest is our first hint in the book of Acts that the preaching of the gospel will result in persecution. Like we've already read, Peter and John have been seized, they've been chucked in jail, threatened, but then they've been let go. There are no consequences for now. So how does the church respond to this first taste of resistance? This first glimpse that loyalty to King Jesus will mean clashing with their earthly rulers. Look with me at verse 23. They pray. They pray this big, bold, daring prayer to their even bigger God. Sovereign Lord, they pray, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. First, they look up. Before they do anything, they acknowledge God's sovereignty, that he is creator of all things in heaven and on earth and all people. They remind themselves of the bigness of the God they serve and his power over everything. And then they look back. They look back on the Old Testament and interpret the events of history through the lens of scripture. They invoke the words of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They use this Psalm to interpret the events of Jesus' death. These events were not outside God's sovereign hand, and the believers affirmed they did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. They remind themselves that nothing in history is outside of God's control. God is so powerful and so good that he could use the evil actions of men to bring about salvation for all. So then their prayer looks to the future. What will the believers ask for to help them face what's to come? Do they ask for the authorities to be stopped? Do they ask for the threats to go away, for God to keep them safe? No. They pray, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. 
Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your servant Jesus. They don't ask for the challenges to go away or for those persecuting them to be brought to justice. Instead, they pray for great boldness so that they can keep proclaiming the name of Jesus. They pray for miracles. They pray for things that only God can do. And they pray from a place of security, knowing that God's purposes always prevail over anyone and anything that tries to get in the way. It's a bold prayer prayed to a powerful God who they know is sovereign over all things. And look, it's a prayer that is answered instantly. The place where they are is shaken and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they speak the word of God boldly. Are our prayers marked by this kind of boldness? Do we pray big, audacious, daring prayers? As I was reflecting on this passage, I felt convicted that my own prayers felt pretty tame. And if we don't start with this awesome, big, and powerful view of God, we limit the imagination of our prayers. We pray for things that we think are in our own influence, things that we think are reasonable outcomes, right? And not consider, not remember that we're praying to a limitless God whose mercy and grace and power know no bounds. The God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So don't handicap your prayers. Pray big, bold prayers to our big God. Is there a friend who you think is so far beyond the reach of the gospel? Pray that God would work in them to soften their heart and heart and draw them close to you. Are you overwhelmed by the statistic that there are 3.4 billion people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus? Pray to the Lord of nations to raise up people to boldly proclaim the salvation found in Jesus' name. Pray that if he wants to use you in taking his gospel to those who need to hear it, that he would do that whether that's to the person in your Tuesday morning toot or to a people group somewhere halfway around the world. Pray the daring, dangerous prayer today. God, if you want me to go, I'll go. Pray that the Holy Spirit would work miraculously in people's lives through dreams and visions and other means to point them to Jesus. Our God isn't bound by our imagination, so we shouldn't let our prayers be either. Let's pray big, bold prayers for the gospel to keep going out through bold proclamation empowered by the Holy Spirit. Earlier, I talked about the significance of Acts 1.8, these incredible words of Jesus that give us the roadmap, not just for the book of Acts, but for the whole story of the church. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, believers will bear witness to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts tracks the story of the beginning of the church and the community and movement that grows through bold proclamation of Jesus' name, through bold allegiance to Jesus in the face of opposition, and through the praying of bold prayers. And the Bible also gives us an amazing picture of where this story where our story ends. In Revelation 7, 9 to 10, it says that one day there will be a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, 
people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what it looks like for Jesus' words in Acts 1.8, to be ultimately and completely fulfilled. A countless multitude of people from every nation and tribe and people and language, all declaring that salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. A glorious crowd made up of saints who have heard of the salvation found only in Jesus and have put their trust in him. One day, for each of us here that puts our trust in the Lord Jesus, who receives the salvation found only in his name, we will be there. We will be amongst that multitude and we'll be surrounded by our brothers and sisters across time and across language from every tribe and nation, those who have also put their trust and hope in him. Imagine being there, surrounded by the Christians who went before you, the ones who boldly proclaimed the gospel to you. Now picture seeing the people that you shared the gospel with, your mum, your brother, your housemate, that friend in your troop, your coworker, your neighbour, the person that you prayed bold and unceasing prayers for, the person you once thought was so far beyond the reach of the gospel. Uni Church, do you long for that day? Are you guided and captivated by this beautiful vision of God's people, enjoying his presence and love forever? How will we pay, play our part in this epic and glorious story? Who will you boldly proclaim the gospel to? When faced with opposition, will you boldly stand with Jesus, even when it hurts, even when it comes at a cost? Will you pray big, bold, audacious, daring, dangerous prayers for God to bring people to faith in Jesus? Will you pray boldly for opportunities for you to be the one who tells someone about Jesus? And will we trust that the Holy Spirit will be speaking through us when we get those opportunities? Let me pray for us that we will. Father in heaven, you are the sovereign creator of heaven and earth and everything in it. You have made a plan to gather people from every nation, tribe and tongue to hear the name of your son Jesus and to put their trust in him. And in your mercy, you have made it so that we play a part in this epic story by boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus. Use us, Lord, despite our weakness, our insecurity, our fear, and fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can proclaim Jesus boldly. Give us opportunities near and far to tell people about Jesus. And when we come up against opposition, please speak through your spirit that lives in us. Help us be guided by a vision of your majesty and your goodness so that we can step out of our comfort zones and be bold in Jesus' name and for his sake. We pray this in his beautiful, saving name. Amen.